You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee. And I am Paul Doroshenko. Oh, you you introduced so, yourself instead of letting me introduce you. You know, we talked last time about you wanting consistency. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, yeah, consistency is good. But I mean, you know, then it could just be the same show every time. And why not just mix it up a bit? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, um, there you go. So I mixed it up. Good. Well, I want to talk to you. Exciting, everyone. (laughs) You suggested, I'm incorporating a suggestion. You always tell me you don't like my ideas. You always shut them down. I'm incorporating one of your suggestions. We're going to have a new bit every week. Really? Whether you're on or not. um, Where we talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. Really? I thought it'd be like once a month. Well, but there's that many bad drivers out there, don't worry. who's the ridiculous driver of the week? This week's ridiculous driver. As you know, there was a very popular television show called Game of Thrones. I've heard of it. I'm among the people. I've never watched it. Me neither. But apparently people were very excited for the end of the show, which was this week. We're like pariahs for not watching it. We're disconnected from our culture. We don't know what's going on. And uh, uh, Arya Stark ended up living i think whatever i don't know yeah, enough. You, don't you've been following at least some of the discussion about it I don't yeah know. well i follow the drama the internet drama anyway one game of thrones fan was so um so intent on getting home soon enough to watch the finale that he drove in coquitlam a hundred and seven kilometers an hour in a 50 mm. zone Okay, yeah, that's pretty stupid driving. You have to imagine that that show would be on again. I mean, I assume it's on like some downloadable it's on, like, thing. It's on Netflix or it's something. It's on Crave it? TV. Look, the new episode is put on Crave, so you could literally just log into your Crave account and start it from the beginning. Did he get any sympathy when he told the police no, that? Or no, he... he got a, a seven-day mandatory vehicle impoundment, and I'm sure that made him a lot later for the show than he would have been had he not been driving more than double the speed limit. Well, that's pretty ridiculous driving. That's stupid driving. There's no doubt. But people do that all the time. Um, we, You and I drove to court this afternoon in North oh, Vancouver. God. And we were in two um, two different courtrooms doing two different things. And the uh, there was this fellow on the Dodge truck uh, in front of us on the upper levels highway. He came barreling up behind me and then barreling up behind everybody. I, didn't, I was in the left-hand lane. I was, you know, it was heavy traffic. So I was entitled to be in the left-hand lane. I knew as soon as it cleared out to the right that I was probably would get into the right-hand lane so the guy could get ahead of me even though I was, you know, moving along. Well, also I, that I section knew. of the upper levels is 70 kilometers an hour, so the left lane law doesn't apply there. Oh, I didn't know that, but yes. regardless, thank you for Important educating me. Yeah. The left lane law only applies on roadways, highways, where the speed limit is 80 kilometers an hour or greater. Oh, I probably read that at some point when the legislation came out, but... Um, I was looking at him in my mirror and I thought, I can't even get into the right-hand lane because I know as soon as it gets clear there, he's going to go barreling in there. If I go signal to change, even if I signal and take my time, he'll just rear-end me. Anyway, there are, uh, it's springtime. 
And there's a lot of really bad drivers out there. Oh my yeah, well, God. it's the time then to start our ridiculous driver of the week, and this was this was this week's ridiculous driver. That's pretty ridiculous. Now, is it going to be limited to people from British Columbia, or is it going to be a? No, but I don't think I'm going to like you know go on the the Russian you know dash cam YouTube account Finding every week. Finding ridiculous drivers in Russia is not so tough. Yeah, that's like finding ridiculous drivers in parking lots in Richmond. Yeah, <laughs> not just Richmond, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, place, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> can be pretty bad. Um, no, so that is our ridiculous driver of the week. But I actually wanted to talk to you more importantly, Paul. Yeah. About another ridiculous thing this week, which is a case out of Ontario. So in Ontario, there is currently a trial happening where a bartender um, and a server are charged with criminal negligence, causing death. Now, they didn't overserve the patrons who then drank themselves to death. Instead, it's alleged that they knowingly overserved their patron, then yeah. knowingly allowed him to leave, knowing that he was going to drive, and he then caused an accident which resulted in the death of somebody else. That's a lot of steps away from the actual accident. Well, that's the thing. and um, I mean, that's, that's so many steps away from the accident. How can they yeah, possibly prove it? It is, to my knowledge. And what about mental intent like where's the mens rea how you how can you establish well, it's criminal negligence okay so. so it's criminal negligence so it's not it's not the same but it's still a, you still, a high a s- it's a high it's not negligence like casual negligence it's like extreme negligence yeah yeah like you would have to have a uh what's the standard a marked departure um from and, and it's like applied as a serious marked departure it's yeah not, yeah yeah, and I just, I don't think that it's going to get ever to that level. Like you, as a server, how could you possibly be responsible for the actions of a patron once they leave your establishment? I don't know. Anyway, I, I'd very, say it's kind of impossible. Very interesting case. Um, maybe they've got, maybe they have the evidence. Maybe they can prove it. potentially the first case in Canada in which this idea of host liability is extended to... Uh, is extended to the criminal context. Yeah, I know. It's always usually those cases where the host overserves, and here we have actually they're going to try and prosecute it as a criminal case, and mm-hmm. they're prosecuting it as a criminal case. Yeah, I sure hope it's not successful. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch. But I thought that would lead us into a good discussion of what you know. What is host liability? What obligations do you, as a host or any of our our bartender or server customers, what do you? What obligations do you have when somebody is um, is in your establishment or in your home and consuming alcohol? In relation to them driving. It's funny. This was um, becoming a topic and it was something that we were taught in law school. And that's like 22 years ago um, that we were discussing it. And it was there were some cases that arose at that point or had arisen in the previous 15 years uh, starting to look at that. And up until that point, it was really not discussed. And, And the expectation every time that it's brought out and discussed in the media is that like... You better not serve a drink because, oh my goodness, it's big trouble. Uh, you know, you're gonna end up, you're gonna end up sued for sure, and somebody's gonna be sued. And I, I haven't seen it uh, 
There's very few host liability cases, and they're usually in circumstances where it's plainly obvious that the host was negligent in their hosting duties. Yeah, serving people the drinks and could see that the person was plastered drunk and give them see, their keys could see them walking, walking out, out the door, door and say yep. yeah here's one for drive the safe yeah. <laughs> and it, you it's surprising though how often people are like you know oh have one for the road or or you know have a shot before you leave it's a common occurrence we do see it still usually in rural communities mm-hmm. um sometimes in people who just have a real culture of drinking but we do see them in some of our files and it's not I mean, it's, a lot of the times they, it's uh, people who have had very little to drink will have the one for the road. Yeah. Um, anyway, so what what can you do? What are your obligations as a host, Paul? I'm asking you to educate our listeners. Well, this is this is once again, you don't tell me what the topic's going to be. And you, I, I emailed you this topic. You didn't email me this. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think the obligations are? I think that if you are serving alcohol to people, you need to make sure, first of all, that you are not serving them to the point that they are grossly intoxicated because you run the risk of them injuring themselves by leaving and falling down, even if they're not driving, or by um, having alcohol poisoning. So you need to you know, monitor what your guests are consuming and make sure that you cut them off uh, at an appropriate time. People See, can get I, good I, and drunk, but I, not uh, yeah. good and drunk. I think you have to go further than that. I think you have to go further than that. I think you are in a situation as a host. I mean, it depends on the party. Like if you have 75 people show up at your house um, for some event and you it's you. Uh, you know, because your friend posted about your New Year's Eve party on sure, Reddit. Exactly. Or something like that. Personal example. Yeah. Then uh, I, I think you are really um, exempt from any obligation toward those people who showed up with their with their two dozen beer and sat in your yard and got plastered and then took off and drove. Sure. But, but I think if you're having, you know, if you're having the dinner party and you've got 12 friends over and you're going to serve them, you know, some sherry at the end of the night and you can see that one fellow's had too much, uh, plonk and he's stumbling out the door. I think that is the situation where, yeah, you have an obligation, um, at that point, when you know he drove there and his car is parked out in front and they, he's about to get back into his car, uh, I think you have an obligation at that point to step up. And I think that's a full-on legal obligation. So I think it really depends on the circumstances and the situation. Um, if you know how people got there, somebody showed up driving their car, you know that. You know that you've watched them sit and drink enough to the point where there's no... You know, you look at them and you can assess them as a layperson as being um, impaired in their ability to do anything, uh, you know, in particular drive. Then I think, yeah, I think you've, you've now triggered the the obligation on you. It's a duty of care. If you don't do something, it's a breach of the duty. If there's damage resulting, there's damage resulting. And I think, you know, you can be on the hook. Yes. Okay. I I don't disagree with that. Now, the obligation it's becomes the obligation wow. becomes stronger though when it comes to people who are working in a professional capacity serving liquor. Um, at least in British Columbia, and I don't purport to know about Ontario's liquor laws, but I imagine they're roughly the same. Um, at least in British Columbia, um, you as a server have an obligation to make sure that you don't overserve a customer. There's limits on how much alcohol you can bring a single person. 
um, in an order and there's limits on how much alcohol you can serve them ultimately um, based on your assessment of their level of intoxication. I used to work at the BC liquor store and we had, um, we got specific training about this. We got trained on, you know, how to spot an intoxicated customer and what to do to refuse sales to people who were, who were, who had been drinking, um, as well as our obligation to report people who got in their cars if we had reason to believe that they'd been drinking. Yeah, it's been a big problem for me when I moved to BC from Alberta because my standard order used to be like, bring me a pitcher every 20 minutes until one of us passed out and then bring, you know, one pitcher every 10. And that was generally our drinking method. And I moved to BC and I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's, it's not the Alberta way. Yeah, you have to share a pitcher with another person. Yeah, I mean, it was so I was more than happy to sit and just pound back the pitcher. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> those were the day. I never lived in those days. Um, that was the eighties. Yeah. Um, anyway, the the so you know because there is a greater burden on these people who are working in a uh, a liquor service capacity, who are professionals, so to speak, when it comes to serving alcohol. Is it not arguable that there is? a much easier case to be made out criminally against them for the criminal negligence? Um, I mean, I guess you would have to, it depends on the fact pattern. It depends on, it depends on the fact pattern. Um, you think in BC, because of the clear statement that we've got of our law and the obligations that have been created as a result of like... The, yeah, and the servers have to take specific training serving uh, it right, and they have to keep current on that. Current, yes. I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it would make it any easier. I don't think it would make it any easier. I think you almost have to prove that they are like maliciously negligent in their duties in order to establish it. I think that that goes. Uh, I think that goes too far. But I, I don't think ultimately at the end of the day that this case is going to result in a conviction. I think that the crown is going to fall far far short of what they need to prove in these circumstances because this this chain of causation between serving someone and letting them leave to being negligent about whether they kill somebody I I just see that as being too high and I see this as just a, a huge example of overreach on the part of the state. <clears throat> Here's my problem with your assessment or prediction. And I accept that that would maybe be the case in British Columbia. Yeah. But I find that, um, you know, the the situation in BC is different than other locations. Uh, in Ontario, um, you know, I've conducted trials in Ontario. I've pulled lots of case law over the years in Ontario. And there's lots of things that have led to convictions in Ontario that I do not think would have led to a conviction in Alberta or British Columbia. Um, so I'm I am very reluctant to predict it. Uh, sometimes in Ontario, I look at it and I wonder, I can't believe that this person was convicted on this set of facts. Uh, so there's a, there's like a different reasonable doubt standard applied at different parts of the country. And, you know, that's just inevitable. It's a culture of the courthouses and the, and the law in the province that is going to be different. Okay. Well, the other thing that I think we need to talk about this week is the big announcement that happened on Tuesday morning. Uh, Bill Blair came out to Vancouver Police Department headquarters and he said, hey, I'm going to give $80 million to police forces across Canada, 10.1 million specifically earmarked for British Columbia over a few years 
to purchase equipment related to drug uh, drug impairment quote unquote impairment testing and training officers to detect impaired drivers. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm just thinking like, are they not paying attention to what's going on? Like, like literally, the, the, the public knows that the devices just tell you potentially presence, that they can tell you that they can give you a, false readings as a result of uh, contamination from substances being in the mouth long after consumption and not when it's affecting the person. Um, and uh, that you can get false readings and that uh, uh, chronic users who can have uh, uh, absolutely no impairment can get a reading, whereas a novice user who's absolutely flattened by recent use of cannabis can be really impaired yet pass the test without any problem. Are they not paying attention to any of this? Well, never mind that. Are they not paying attention to the numbers that have come out since cannabis legalization? Literally every police force across the country has said, yeah, there's been no spike in impaired driving since we legalized cannabis. No, it's not been a problem. Yeah, no, we haven't uh, seen it. We haven't even seen a spike in in 24-hour driving prohibitions no, for drugs. No, it's VPD quoted their numbers during the announcement. You know, we've had uh, like 15 charges under the Cannabis Act, most of which are for people um, who are unlawfully producing cannabis for like sale, um, like grow-ups that are still well, happening. Well, it's people Very driving, driving along with Tupperware containers of cannabis. You mean Rubbermaid bins? Well... Either way, those people are getting cannabis act, but uh, offenses. But the, the the point is, I'm talking about driving. There's been no increase really from what we've seen in 24 hour driving prohibitions for drugs. No, and I think and those things are issued on like nothing of a standard, a police officer's whim, more and or less. Even less than 30 charges, I think, in BC for people having open cannabis in their car. Yeah, so I mean, it's just there's it's been the big nothing. Like cannabis <laughs> yeah. legalization oh, no. has led to nothing. Well, and it was delayed for all those months as a result. So Jody Wilson-Raybould and Bill Blair could get this ready. And here we are. He's still harping on it. Yeah. He's going to spend our taxpayer money on it. $80 million. It's just like you're thinking to yourself, $80 million. That could how? buy like two homes in Vancouver. Well, yeah. Or you could probably like create a, a safe drinking water system on on three Manitoba reserves. I like, think there's a reserve that still needs a road. There's, well, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of them. But regardless, like $80 million wasted. Yeah. But it brings me to another thing. Okay, so, you know, the government comes out and makes this announcement and they make the announcement and, and years later, nobody's going to look at it to see whether or not it accomplished anything or did anything. We got any value for that money. When the IRP scheme came out in BC, the BC Liberal said, oh, yeah, we're just going to cut down impaired driving. It's going to stop impaired driving. People are going to get the message for it. And here we are nine years later and we see as many IRPs being handed out as in the beginning. Um, it's just nobody follows up on those things in the end. And I know that this money is going to get doled out. Um, I, I think there's probably a lot of police forces that could use the money for like money laundering investigations and things like that. But it's going to get doled out to buy equipment that does not tell us what we need to know, that does not properly fit within the, the Canadian legal scheme. Uh, and it's going to be hugely problematic. That may very soon be determined to be unconstitutional. We filed the constitutional challenge in Nova Scotia. 
um, in the last week and a half. So your name on it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's, it's happening, you know, and, and I, I mean, I think that this is effectively the federal government attempting to bully provincial police forces that have said, oh, you know, we, can, we don't want to make this risk. We have a limited amount of resources, financial resources. Um, we don't want to spend $10,000 on the device, the printer, and then 25 bucks a cartridge to test people when we're reasonably certain that this is going to be vulnerable to constitutional challenge and likely struck down as unconstitutional due to the time it takes to take the sample, the fact that it's an incredibly invasive search, there's no right to counsel in the meantime, there's high rates of false positives, it doesn't work in cold weather. Um, I, I, I just don't see how it will withstand constitutional scrutiny. And if that's the case, then police forces don't want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. But if the federal government comes in riding in on their, you know, mythical white horse and says, here you go, here's millions of dollars. Now go buy the toy. I don't know. Like if somebody gave me $10 million and said, hey, you want to buy this really risky thing? I'd be like, sure. I got some surplus cash now. I know. I have, I have, actually more confidence in the Vancouver Police Department than that. Um, there's lots of officers I don't have confidence in, but overall, there's they're pretty good these days. And I have some confidence in their capacity to look at this and roll their eyes and say, this is just the federal government coming along, um, trying to uh, somehow make their legislation look better prior to the the election that's coming up in October. Uh, so far, their legislation has been a complete piece of shit, um, and well, also, here they are trying it, to. And, it, and nobody's nobody's adopted it because of it's so stupid. It and, doesn't look good when you have an election coming and you, you know, you legalized cannabis, but you delayed it for months after it could have happened, could easily have happened far sooner. You delayed it all that extra time. And then your explanation was, well, we were really concerned about impaired driving. And turns out what you said was a concern wasn't a concern. And you were wrong. And you wasted a bunch of time. You wasted a bunch of money. People are going to be ticked off about that. And you don't think that's not going to come up in the in the next election? Of well, course yeah, that, it will. That's my point. Right? So if the boogeyman didn't appear make the boogeyman appear. And if that means forcing the police to investigate everyone as a potential cannabis-impaired driver by giving them enough money to do it, then you know maybe I'm being overly cynical here about government. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but I, I, I think this is a, an issue of them trying to make a boogeyman appear. If you build it, they will come. Well, if yeah. you buy the drug yeah. testers, this they the will. the field yeah. of drug-impaired driving dreams. Mm. <laughs> um but also, I think that my cynicism is well-founded because of what has been reported today, the day that we are recording this podcast, which is Thursday, um, but it'll be released Friday, so yesterday to those of you who are listening. Um, and that's the $24 million federal investment in cannabis-related research. This was interesting. I'm surprised that um, it took them this long to do it because you would think that I'm, the one thing that surprised me about cannabis and the rollout of cannabis is that, yes, there's a few big companies doing it, 
And yes, there's a lot of micro growers who really want to be in it, but I haven't seen the mid-size companies um, and I expected a lot more investment in it. Now the federal government's looking at it saying, well, you know what, this, maybe this, we're, we're over the stigma of this a little bit and maybe we can start to investigate the other uses, um, advantages and possibilities for the economy of cannabis. And they're starting to finally click in. Yeah, but where's the freaking money to look into issues of cannabis-impaired driving? How to accurately identify well, I know. It? They put like a million dollars into that. No, no, no. Yeah. It was like 900000 yeah. over three years. But, like, you have millions of dollars that you're committing to enforcement. You have millions of dollars that you're committing to cannabis research, but none of it... You still have no way to detect whether or not people are impaired. ...into the thing that you're trying to enforce. Yeah. And, like, I'm sorry, we have this golden opportunity here in Canada right now where you can, like, we can, with legal cannabis, do the best research in the entire world on driving impairment, detection, and drugs. And it's, 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 we're just squandering that by not putting any meaningful amount of money into it, and instead throwing ridiculous sums of money at, at the detection phase when the methods that we're using to detect are flawed. And Michigan is a really great example of this. I don't know if you saw, um, there was a uh, an article that was sent around by Evan Levo, who you know um, from the DUI Defense Lawyers Association. And this was a study, the Michigan government, in looking at legalizing recreational cannabis, wanted to also deal with this potential concern about cannabis-impaired driving and whether or not it was appropriate to set a limit for the amount of THC that you have in your system. So the government funded a study to look into this and looked at all of the data and the research and spoke to people and came to conclusions about what number you could put on your blood THC concentration to identify impairment. Would you like to know the results of that study? I, I I haven't read the study. I would guess about what the results are, but you tell me what the results are. I, we'll see if I, it's confirmed. But you're just going to say it was right, Paul. Well, there's, that's a possibility, but I'm a fairly honest guy, I think. I'm just... <laughs> we'll have I'll no tell way you of knowing. <laughs> you write it down on a piece of paper. Just tell, <laughs> just tell me. They determined after months of study and research and interviews and money spent, millions spent looking into the issue, there is absolutely no correlation between THC concentration and impairment, and they are not going to write impaired driving laws when it comes to cannabis that put a number on it. Yeah, that's. I, 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 I wish I'd written that down, because then I could prove to you that I was going to predict it correctly. Well, of course you were going to predict I, I knew you were going to predict that. that. I predicted that because we've seen enough of in you know within our own research and and uh, the general and consensus in the scientific community the general consensus in the scientific community yes so here we are in canada where we've got uh, per se levels and uh, i really worry about people who are going to be convicted you know i read this week about somebody who walked into court and pled guilty to a cannabis impaired driving charge uh, and it sounded like he pled guilty at his first appearance or something like that in, Prince Edward uh, Island. in PEI. Yeah. And I was, as I was reading it, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, like, you got a criminal record now. You've got a one year driving prohibition. You've got a criminal record for impaired driving by drugs. It's like, 
did you talk to a lawyer? Did he have a lawyer? Does well, I mean, the facts of the manner in which he was driving were pretty bad, though. I think he was doing donuts and just generally stunt driving. But perhaps that was explainable. It sounds like he was a young dude who was acting like an idiot. I did, and you don't I, need weed to do that. When I was young, I did that. No weed involved. I drove like an asshole, you know. Well, it wasn't actually, it wasn't necessarily an asshole. There was nobody around. But, you know, I spun donuts in my Datsun. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't mean I was impaired. And they have to prove that he's impaired, and and I I just cannot see how they would prove that he is impaired if he's got the capacity to be able to successfully spin some donuts in his car. Yeah, and not lose control. Yeah. Anyway, very uh, very scary because things like that also set the stage for for future people pleading guilty and future charges. I just think... Well, it screws up the statistics, too. You know, people go running into court and pleading guilty just because I... I, Well, I smoked some marijuana and I was driving. You know, it's the same as the people. Well, I had something to drink and I was driving, therefore I must be guilty. Well, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's not it. There's there's more to it than that. Very recently heard a story from somebody, I won't say who, um, who was concerned when they were stopped uh, in a police check and had consumed two beers before driving. And uh, they were worried. Thought that'd be the end of their thought, career. Thought that would be the end of their career. Turns out they were fine. Because, you know, depending on your weight, depending on the size of the beers, depending on the alcohol concentration, and the time that passes, you could be just fine. And no mouth alcohol. Yeah. That's why I said time that passes. Yeah. Um, speaking of none of that at all, um, you reminded me of my traffic court today which brings me to the third topic that i wanted to talk about which was police 144 one a and one b no that'll be another podcast i do want to do a, a podcast episode where we talk about the 144 sections of the motor vehicle act i think they're very important but they're no, hugely I, important yeah Yeah. No, I wanted to focus today on police and traffic court and things that police do frequently in traffic court that people should watch out for because they're not actually permissible. So um, today I did. Police officers do all sorts of things in traffic court that are not permissible. I know. The self-represented accused are getting run over by a truck. Yeah. Um, And. Also a good lesson in why you should have a lawyer in traffic court. Well, also a good lesson in why you should have somebody who's actually a lawyer and not like a paralegal who's not going to understand the legal implications of things that they do. Yes. Um, anyway, in traffic court uh, today, I had an officer who wanted to do two things. One, he wanted to testify about his evidence from his notes that he took at the time of the incident. And two, he wanted to read a... Uh, what he called a template, but was was actually a script in giving his evidence in court. This is a surprisingly common thing we see. So police officers show up and they think they can just read off of something to give their evidence. And I don't know what there, happens with there self-represented are, there accused. There are scripts that circulate amongst yeah. police. I know, but I don't know what happens with self-represented accused. So often what the officer will do is they'll put it on top of um, sort of on top of the, the little shelf there um, where they're testifying and just look down at it as they're going on giving their evidence. And the judicial justice might not see what's going on, but the officer's actually just reading off something prepared by some other officer 
four years ago and hand it out to all the other officers. Or by themselves. Them, or by themselves, but to tell them what to say. Um, not to testify about the evidence, but to make sure that they cover off a bunch of things that are not even necessarily what happened. Um, and it's hugely, it's a hugely problematic, especially if you're a self-represented accused, which is why I would encourage you not to be a self-represented accused. Yeah. So, so today, of course, when I see police officers wanting to do that, usually I tell them in the hallway, if there's some indication that they're going to, um, if there's some indication that they're going to be using it, uh, I tell them in the hallway, you can't use that. And often I get pushback. I say, well, yes, I can. <laughs> no, you can't. You're not allowed to read a script in court. Um, and then, you know, sometimes we have to get a ruling on whether they're allowed to read from it. But the officer today just uh, asked before starting his evidence whether he it would be okay for him to read from this and that he would give a copy of it to me if I wanted. Um, and it, it's surprising how little they know about what you're actually supposed to do when you give evidence. And after court, I was talking in the hallway with um, some prosecutors and some defense lawyers about what had happened in the trial, just, you know, sharing the story. And they were all very surprised that the officer wanted to do that. And one prosecutor asked me, well, haven't they ever testified in a trial before? Like, don't they know? <laughs> it's not how it works. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to be fair to the police here... Um, First of all, in British Columbia, you don't have impaired driving trials like you used to. You used to be in court and the hallway would be packed with police officers waiting to go into court in impaired driving trials. Because of the IRP scheme, we don't have that. So they're not accustomed to testifying in those trials. You also don't have a prosecutor there. So the police officers trying to do it all on their own without any prompting. So now they probably have realized that lots of times they show up there and they, they just can't remember what to say. They don't know what to say. They can't remember how to conduct the trial. Uh, and so they've got a script that they've created. Now it's, I mean, it's wrong, but the police officer is prosecuting the matter and it makes it difficult for them. And somebody came up with this idea, obviously, because I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't see any script 10 years ago. This is, uh, something that I've seen in the last two, three years. And, I know that they had them. I mean, Grant has shown me his original script that he wrote a long time ago, but he hand wrote it out in his first notebook uh, and used it, you know, to memorize his, his, what he was felt he was supposed to say at the beginning of his career. Um, but the, um, it is, it has been passed around, photocopied, changed, modified, and we see this uh, all over the place. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's surprising that I guess that they don't know that they're not supposed to do that. But how much training do they get about going to traffic court? And the other thing that they do a lot, which they're allowed to do, is rely on their notes. Um, but there's a big problem with that. And I, I litigated this in a case called Mendoza, um, where the officer wanted to rely on his notes to refresh his memory about what happened. And the, the judicial justices of the peace, of course, are always going to allow that because officers write thousands of tickets 
a year later, they're never going to remember the details of the specific one. Um, and they should be allowed to look at their notes. But the problem is that their notes often don't include everything that they're testifying about. And they're never asked by self-represented litigants to indicate when they're looking at their notebook when they're not. In this trial, the officer puts his notes right down on the uh, on the. Uh, What's it it's called? Like a shelf there yeah, the, at the shelf, edge of the... right? The edge of the witness box uh, in front of him and starts looking, flipping through it right before he even says a word. Of course, I'm up out of my seat. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a matter of making sure that the court is aware when the officer is going from memory and when the officer is going from book. Because if there's a crucial piece of evidence that's not recorded in the notebook, that can be a problem. Of course. So in the Mendoza case that uh, I had argued, in that case, the officer testified in great detail about having conducted uh, the checks of the laser device prior to uh, prior to his shift. And it turns out in cross-examination that there wasn't a single note of having done that. No, and that's, you know, that's because they don't realize that they should be taking notes about those things and that they should be able to demonstrate to the court that they got some evidence that they did it. Right. And um, the, the judgment in the end ultimately found that, you know, these important factors need to be recorded in the notebook. That it's not enough, it's not good enough for an officer to just come to court and say, well, I, I would have done it, so I did it. Well, we've had a problem in this country, and it's a problem not just in British Columbia, but it's across the country and, and different in different provinces. But we've um, come to permit police officers to generate um, records of what they do on the basis of check marks uh, and check boxes. And you know, the whole IRP scheme was intended to be a one-page check box. People were going to lose their license and their livelihood and everything for uh, three months on the basis of a check box. And on the backs of tickets, um, you know, if you get a ticket for speeding, you don't know what you've got. But on the back of the police officer, I mean, you only see the front of it. The police officer will have a, another version where they'll write their notes and a bunch of check boxes and they've just come to rely on the check boxes as being sufficient um, rather than actually recording the evidence you know you've got a person you're alleging committed an offense and you're saying you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and the best you've got is maybe a check box and a couple of cryptic notes and to me that's just not enough i mean police officers have to take a little bit of time uh, and record what happened so they can remind themselves of what happened uh, to be able to assist their memory rather than just, you know, being able to say what's on their ticket. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So for people who are uh, traffic officers or not traffic officers, just general duty officers who do traffic tickets... Or any officer who has ditch an interest the, in... Ditch the script. It's wrong. There is no legal authority that permits you to read from a script and giving your evidence. Um, unless you're like a witness of limited capacity, like a and, and take small good notes. child. Yeah. Um, and, and take good notes. Take notes of everything you do. As much as you can write down at the time or close in time to it, the better. Because... Uh, you can use it to refresh your memory, and uh, it's going to ultimately be considered more reliable when it's in your notes. And if you're in traffic court and you are faced with an officer who's trying to do these things, remember what they're allowed to look at and what they're not allowed to look at. If you see a fellow officer trying to do this. Yeah, maybe take him aside <laughs> and go listen. Yeah.
We, You're we, not going to get better at gave, giving evidence. We gave you those notes uh, a year ago in the hopes that you would look at it, read it, and think about what you need to provide to the court, but not for you to stand here, read from it, and... Well, and, you know, I use this op- 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 this example often with police officers, which is you don't want to be the guy that shows up to the scene of a fatal impaired driving crash um, who loses the trial because you don't know how to give evidence because you've become accustomed to reading from a script in traffic court. Or you, you, you were accustomed to not taking notes. Yeah. And so you don't note the important pieces of evidence that are necessary to be able to prosecute the case. You know, when the stakes are low, it might not seem like a big deal, but every ticket you give out and every, um, you know, every investigation you conduct is training ground for the ones that really matter. So I don't know. Anyway, that's our little advice for uh, the podcast at the end of the day. If you need to reach either me or Paul, uh, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889 and tune in next week uh, for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Hopefully, uh, no promises, but hopefully we'll have a very interesting discussion about a recent uh, case that's headed to the Supreme Court of Canada on Uber.